Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm Eileen, and joining me, as always, is Colleen. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. Uh, I can't believe it's mid-September and that this is episode 37. I know. Uh, Also, I'm putting the finishing touches on our script that we'll be recording with Lainey, so I'm really excited for you guys to hear that. She'll be here next week. How are you, Eileen? I'm good. Can't wait for Lainey to be here. I'm super excited to show her SF and to do our crossover episode. Also, um, my tattoo is getting finished on Wednesday. Andre Malcolm is the guy who does uh, my work, and he is awesome. So I can't wait for that to be done. In May 2001, armed intruders broke into an apartment in Texas. What seemed like a robbery for drugs and money quickly took a dark turn when a woman and her three-day-old son were kidnapped from the apartment. The next morning, the baby would be found unharmed, but the woman would be found murdered. Quickly, the investigation unfolded, and it appeared that the robbery was a cover orchestrated by a woman named Linda Cardi, who told her husband that she was pregnant with his baby. A quick trial ended in a capital murder conviction, and the case was closed. Is it really that simple, though? Or is there more to the story? Was Linda so desperate for a child that she planned a kidnapping and murder, or was she framed by people from her past? This week, we'll be discussing Linda Cardi and the crime that landed her on death row. Linda Cardi was born on October 5th, 1958 in St. Kitts. And St. Kitts is a small island in the Caribbean that makes up one half of the two island country of St. Kitts and Nevis. The island was colonized by the British and the French in the 1600s, and the country remained part of the British West Indies until gaining independence in 1983. Linda Cardi was born to Anguillan parents and holds British citizenship because St. Kitts was part of the UK at the time of her birth. Linda was a primary teacher in a school that catered to students from low-income families, and her mother would later testify at her trial that she was so well-liked by students that they still asked about her. She was very active in her church, and she was politically active as well. She sang in the choir at her church and spent a lot of time volunteering, And she was also very involved with the People's Action Movement, which focuses on anti-corruption efforts and opposition to unfair taxes. She is also a United States citizen. She and her family immigrated to the U.S. when she was 23 in 1982. She came to the U.S. with most of her family, including her daughter, Jovelle, who was two at the time. Her daughter would later describe her as a strict but good mom, and she said that Linda placed a big importance on schooling, particularly reading, and always had a stack of books for Jovelle to read. Jovelle and others would testify that the Linda they knew was sweet, kind, and generous, that she worked hard to provide for her family and never caused any trouble. They would also say that she didn't have a mean bone in her body and was never cruel to people or animals. She studied pharmacology at the University of Houston, Soon, she was employed as a pharmacy technician while putting herself through school. 
It was here that she became involved with the DEA as an informant. While she was studying in the pharmacology program and working as a pharmacy tech at the local drugstore chain, she began dating a man from Jamaica. This man so happened to also be a drug dealer, and a big-time one at that. Linda now says she didn't realize he was selling drugs and was in the dark. Houston police and the DEA wanted to bring his operation and other operations down, and decided the best way to do so would be from the inside. And the police and the DEA were given the perfect opportunity to gain an informant with significant inside knowledge in 1992 when Linda was arrested. Linda had gone out and rented a car and then proceeded not to pay for it or return it. Furthermore, when she rented the car, she claimed that she was an FBI agent. Police issued a warrant for her arrest for the auto theft, and the FBI opened an investigation into her for impersonating an agent. There was no trial. Linda pled guilty and was given a 10-year probation sentence in exchange for no jail time. In exchange for no jail time, the state agreed to drop the car theft charge if Linda would act as a confidential informant. Linda accepted the deal, and she ultimately provided information that led to two arrests, but she was considered to be a difficult and sometimes uncontrollable informant. Her role as an informant quickly came to an end when Linda herself was arrested on drug charges. Police officers were conducting a stakeout at a home where they received a tip that there would be a significant drug drop. While they were watching the house, Linda showed up to the home with a package. Linda did not stay long, and the police tailed her as she drove off. Once she realized she was being followed, she led the police on a high-speed chase. During the incident, Linda tried to run over a police officer. When she was eventually apprehended, police found almost $4,000 in a suitcase, two guns, and 50 pounds of marijuana in her car. And I would say that that is a departure from the beloved teacher from St. Kitts. Mm -hmm. You know, doing or being involved with drugs is one thing. Trying to run somebody over with a car is quite another. Totally. And although law enforcement maintain that she did assist with two arrests, they also say overall she was a difficult informant and did not accomplish much before she was released from service. Linda, however, said in media interviews that she became an informant after a friend who worked for the Houston Police Department offered her the job. And she says she didn't just help an arrest of two men. According to her, she had a hand in helping the DEA seize tens of thousands of dollars of narcotics and put dozens of drug dealers behind bars. We know from court documents that Linda's version is not entirely accurate. Her version also conveniently leaves out the fact that she was arrested for car theft, impersonating an FBI agent, and becoming an informant helped her avoid jail time. But whatever, those are just details, right? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. In May of 2001, Linda was 42 years old and had been in a relationship with a man named Jose Corona for the past three years. They had been living together and often presented each other as being married when in public. Even though she was 42 and Javel was an adult in her 20s, Linda told Jose on three separate occasions that she was pregnant with his child. Now, it's not impossible to get pregnant when you're 42, but it is considerably more difficult and it's usually a higher-risk pregnancy. Although she told Jose she was pregnant, she refused to allow him to come with her to her doctor's visits, and she would later tell Jose that she miscarried in the first two pregnancies. Jose would later say that he didn't believe that she'd ever been pregnant and he would get his confirmation that she never was after she was arrested. In early May 2001, Jose said he decided to end their relationship in part due to her lying about her pregnancies. He told Linda that he intended to move out and Linda told him that she was pregnant for the third time. Jose, still not believing her, broke off the relationship and moved out of the apartment. After the breakup, Linda rented a storage unit at Public Storage and started moving her things to the unit because her lease on her apartment was up at the end of the month. Then, on May 10th, she rented a second unit. Then, two days later, on the 12th, she rented a third unit. Later, the Public Storage employee would testify that Linda told her she was already in labor and was expecting to give birth to a baby boy that day. So, at Misconduct, we're not pregnancy experts by any means, but... There's no way you're moving things into one of your three storage units while in labor before you head to the hospital to give birth. Like, oh, I just stopped by to drop some stuff off. Do some heavy lifting. Yeah, do some heavy lifting. And now I'm My water broke, but it's cool. (laughs) Jaunt on over to the hospital and have a baby. Uh, Furthermore, everyone who Linda told, you know, hey, I'm pregnant. They all said she didn't look pregnant at all. Right. And the public storage employee testified that she didn't believe Linda was in labor that day at all. She did see her a couple days later on May 15th, driving a Pontiac Sunfire, and Linda mentioned that she did give birth to a son, and he was at home with the father. She was just stopping by the storage unit to pick up baby clothes and blankets. Linda contacted Jose repeatedly about their relationship throughout the month and claimed that she was due in the middle of May. On May 15th, she called him multiple times to say that she was having a baby boy the next day. This was right after she told the employee at the public storage she was going to give birth on the 12th. In the meantime, Linda was organizing a plan and recruiting participants. She needed people who were willing to burglarize a house and help her kidnap a child. She promised the group that inside that apartment they would find cash and 200 pounds of marijuana. This apartment was just a couple doors down from Linda and Jose's in the same complex. Under the guise of a drug robbery, Linda and her group staked out the apartment and familiarized themselves with the layout and the routine of the occupants. After much of the planning had taken place, Linda mentioned that the woman who lived there was due to give birth soon and that she was going to take the baby. And we can only imagine how she intended on taking that baby. Yeah. 
Linda told those involved that the woman was pregnant with Jose's baby and that she needed to take it from the woman and her husband. Some in the group were on board with stealing drugs, but they were not on board with stealing a baby, so it was decided that they would initiate the robbery of the drugs and tell Linda when she could come in and grab the baby. On Sunday, May 13th, the robbery was set to take place, but there was an issue early on in the attempt, so the whole job was aborted. After the failed attempt, two people dropped out. The new plan was that the apartment would be broken into, the drugs and money would be secured, and then they would take the pregnant woman to Linda. In the early hours of May 16th, four men broke into an apartment where 25-year-old Joanna Rodriguez lived with her husband, Raymond Cabrera, and her husband's cousin, Rigoberto Cardenas, and their three-day-old newborn son. Joanna had actually just given birth and was no longer pregnant, which kind of threw a little bit of a wrench into the plan. Only three of the four intruders would be identified, and they were Christopher Robinson, Carlos Williams, and Gerald Anderson, and they broke into the apartment and demanded drugs and money from Joanna, Raymond, and Rigoberto. The intruders beat the two men into submission, and Rigoberto would later testify that while they were making their demands, one of the cell phones rang, and the man answered and said, we are inside, do you want it? And then he hung up and told the other men, she's outside, we have to go. While the men were tying up Joanna, Raymond, and Rigoberto, Linda entered the apartment. The men left, Raymond and Rigoberto, beaten and hogtied in another room. Robinson later said he lied to Linda and said that they killed Raymond and Rigoberto because they were actually afraid that Linda would kill them herself. Robinson also testified that he saw Linda leave the apartment holding the baby and helped Williams and Anderson put Joanna in the trunk of his car. They then left the apartment complex and went to the storage unit. Joanna was then moved to the trunk of Linda's car. The group returned to the street where the apartment complex is located, and according to Robinson's testimony, this is when Linda demanded that the men tie up Joanna. Robinson and Anderson refused, but Williams decided to follow the directive and tied up Joanna. The men were pretty pissed at Linda because they didn't actually get much in the way of drugs or money from the house. In fact, they got some money and no drugs. From where they were sitting, Linda got them to assist in a kidnapping they didn't really want to participate in in the first place. An argument broke out in the street that caused a neighbor to come outside and tell them to quiet down, and according to this neighbor, when he went downstairs, Linda was saying, I got my baby, I got my baby. Williams, Robinson, and Anderson then left to change out the money they stole so they could, you know, split it up. When they returned shortly before 4 a.m., Robinson says he saw Linda half in the trunk and half out with one foot on the ground. He said he then pulled her away and saw that Joanna was face down in the trunk with a plastic bag on her face. He could tell that she had stopped breathing and he ripped the bag open, but it was too late and Joanna was dead. When Robinson asked Linda why she killed Joanna, Linda replied that the baby was hers and her husband's, you know, meaning Jose, that it was their baby and that she wanted to keep it forever. At some point, Raymond and Rigoberto were able to get free and call 911 to report the robbery and kidnapping of Joanna and her son. Police responded to the complex and were conducting their investigation when they were approached by a neighbor from the complex who said that they had something strange to tell them. The woman said that she had encountered her neighbor Linda the night before on the 15th in the parking lot of the complex. She said that Linda said that she was pregnant and that her baby was going to be born the next day. According to the woman, Linda did not look like she was pregnant, and as Linda got into the car, the woman noticed that there was a car seat in the back of her Pontiac Sunfire. 
After this, police decided that they needed to find Linda as soon as possible, and they called her at 9 a.m. on the 16th, which was just a few hours after the kidnapping. They said that they were following up on a complaint that Linda had filed earlier and that it was unrelated to kidnapping and requested that she come to the station to discuss it further. Linda was in the car with Robinson and the baby when she got the call, so Robinson said he dropped her off at the police station and then left with the baby and returned the car to Linda's apartment complex to wait. When Linda entered the station, she told the police that she was an informant for the DEA and she asked to speak with her agent, a man named Charlie Mathis. In the days leading up to the kidnapping, Linda had contacted her old agent and told him that she was pregnant and due to give birth soon. The police asked Mathis to question Linda about what she possibly knew about the murder. With Mathis's encouragement, Linda made a statement to the police. She said that she loaned her daughter Jovelle's car and rental car to people who were probably involved with the kidnapping. She provided officers with an address, and they found a black Chevrolet Cavalier and a Pontiac Sunfire. The Cavalier belonged to Jovelle, and the Sunfire was rented in Jovelle's name. The baby was found alive in the backseat of the Cavalier. Joanna's body was then discovered in the trunk of the Sunfire. Her body had been bound with duct tape around her arms and legs, and her mouth and nose were also taped and a plastic bag had been duct taped around her head and ripped open. Joanna's death was ruled to be a homicidal suffocation. Linda's fingerprints were found in both cars. A baby bag full of diapers, clothes, and formula was also found inside the car. Inside the bag, investigators also found a 38 caliber bullet. Jose would later testify that Linda owned a 38 caliber gun. Police pulled Linda's phone records and were led to Gerald Anderson, the person who Linda spoke to during the robbery. Records showed that the two exchanged seven phone calls during the kidnapping. He was arrested and gave his statement implicating Linda as the mastermind and the others as participants. He was then charged with capital murder. He and the others all took pleas for lesser sentences, no death penalty, in exchange for testifying against Linda. And based on this evidence, Linda was charged with capital murder as well. At trial, the story that Linda was basically this delusional woman who thought her only chance of keeping her husband was to have a baby played well with the jury. Additionally, the prosecution introduced evidence that supposedly showed Linda's intention to cut the baby out of Joanna if necessary. Medical scissors used to cut bandages were purchased by Linda shortly before the murder, and she allegedly said, Bring me the lady, I'll cut the baby out of the bitch myself. Now, anyone who knows what scissors we're talking about knows that bandage scissors have a rounded tip and are not used to make incisions. They can't cut through skin or muscle. So either Linda isn't super smart when it comes to the power or sharpness of scissors, or these scissors weren't purchased with the intent to take Joanna's baby. Exactly. And the prosecution relied heavily on Linda's arrest history, which was primarily involved with drugs and car theft and not murder and kidnapping. However, the prosecution made claims that her past arrest history speaks to the dangers she could possibly pose in the future. The prosecution also relied on the testimony of the men involved in the robbery. Now, all of these men were known to law enforcement for various drug and robbery offenses, but the prosecution maintained that their criminal histories did not make them unreliable witnesses. In fact, they said that it would make them perfect people for someone like Linda to recruit to commit this crime. The defense presented a counter-argument that relied on Linda's character. They hired a clinical psychologist to evaluate Linda, 
And he testified that Linda did not have issues with aggression or anger and that she was not prone to violence. He also said that she did not show signs of being predatory towards people. He noted that her stable upbringing and happy home life led to stable adulthood with regular employment, but he didn't seem to mention her car theft or FBI impersonation. It was also brought up that in addition to raising a now adult daughter who was, you know, self-sufficient and successful in her own right, Linda was the victim of sexual assault that resulted in a pregnancy, and she made the decision to give that child up for adoption. Finally, the psychologist said he was of the opinion that Linda was not capable of committing the crime she was accused of because she didn't fit the profile of a violent person. On cross-examination, the prosecution got the psychologist to admit that Linda did fit some of the characteristics of a child abductor, but he reaffirmed that he did not believe she was a violent person. Linda's mother, daughter, and sister also testified as character witnesses on her behalf. Her mom mentioned her work as a teacher in St. Kitts. Her daughter told the jury her mother was sweet and worked hard her entire life to provide for her. And her sister said she had never seen Linda be violent or cruel towards anyone or anything. Despite the psychologist's and the character witness testimonies, the jury convicted Linda on capital murder charges and sentenced her to death on February 21, 2002. In Texas, if you are sentenced to death, your case is automatically appealed to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, and Linda's appeal was reviewed and denied in April of 2004. Linda then filed an appeal citing ineffective counsel that, among other things, did not advise her of her right as a citizen of the United Kingdom to seek assistance from the consulate. The UK was not aware of her citizenship and did not end up filing a motion on behalf of Linda until 2004. The motion asked that any new evidence found or claims by Linda as to what really happened that night would be allowed into consideration, even though too much time had passed and they were outside of the window of time allowed by law. This motion was denied by the state of Texas. The British government continued to fight on her behalf, but each motion was denied. There is no death penalty in the United Kingdom, and the government continued to fight to keep one of their citizens from being put to death. In May of 2010, Linda's last appeal was denied, and now her option is to be recommended for clemency by the Texas Board of Parole. These recommendations are not common, and the recommendation for clemency has to be carried out by the governor, which is even more rare. So now we're going to go through some of the evidence that didn't make it into the first trial and what Linda and her supporters think happened the night Joanna was killed. First, there has not been any forensic evidence that places her at the crime scene. Yes, her fingerprints were in both cars, but the cars were in her daughter's possession. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that Linda used them unrelated to the murder and kidnapping. Linda's fingerprints did not appear on the duct tape used to bind Joanna, but it doesn't appear that they were tested. In addition to not being advised that she could seek help from the British government, Linda claims that she did not commit the murder or orchestrate the robbery and kidnapping. Instead, she says that she is being framed by the men who actually committed the crime because of her connection as a DEA confidential informant. She says it's likely that she is being framed in retaliation for providing information to the feds that put people like them in prison. She claimed these people went as far as to plant baby clothes and other items in a storage unit in her name. Linda has said in an interview that there is one man who could verify her claims. William Arvizio worked with Linda and the DEA, and she said she let William use her daughter's car the night that Joanna died, and this would put him at the scene with the other perpetrators. 
Unfortunately, William was shot execution style in his home along with his wife and child before Linda's trial even began. So whatever the extent of his involvement was, we will never know. Also, Linda's trial lawyer never spoke with Jose Corona, Linda's, you know, for all intents and purposes, husband, and he ended up testifying for the prosecution because he felt like he was required to do that when they called. He was not advised of spousal privilege, which extends to common law marriages in Texas, and he later said that if he had been given the chance, he would have testified that Linda did not deserve the death penalty because she was not a violent person. Linda also claims that her original lawyer didn't spend more than an hour speaking with her before the trial began, and that begs the question, how can you build a suitable defense in a capital murder case when you haven't spoken for more than 60 minutes? She also says that she tried to get a hold of him many times and her calls went unreturned. And to give you an idea of how her trial lawyer feels about these allegations of ineptitude, he said that she was extremely difficult to work with, and at one point they had to bribe her with a chocolate bar just to get her to talk to them. They insist this is true, even though Linda claims she has a severe allergy to chocolate. This claim is backed by her daughter, who said she can't recall a time she didn't know about the allergy. Even Mathis, Linda's former DEA agent from when she was an informant, expressed his disappointment that he was not given the chance to testify in her defense. Instead, he was called for the prosecution, and he said he never wanted to send anyone to death row. He also said if Linda committed this crime, then she is mentally ill and maintains that she is, in his opinion, incapable of murder. Mathis no longer works for the DEA. Instead, he works as a private investigator. So that brings us to today. She was convicted of murder and put on death row 15 years ago this past February. She currently has a legal team fighting for her freedom, and their hope is that the case will be taken up by the Supreme Court, but a move like that is extremely rare. She could be pardoned, but again, a move like that in a case like this is extremely rare. So for final thoughts, I mean, you know how I feel about the death penalty. I yeah. don't think we need to go into it again. Uh, I think that the question for me is, do I think that she did it? And I'll be honest, at first, I was completely on the side of guilty. I wrote her off as some baby-crazed weirdo who kidnapped a baby in order to try and stay with a guy, basically. Right. And while her fall from grace, so to speak, seems pretty quick and extreme, I figured she must have done it, too. But now I'm a little less sure. I think she is probably responsible only because there is so much testimony of her telling other people who were not involved with the crime that she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. And it was clear that she probably wasn't. And she said that she was framed for murder, but an employee at public storage saw her putting baby stuff in one of her units and mm -hmm. coming to get it later. And then there's that neighbor that had that interaction with her the day before the kidnapping where Linda told her she was going to give birth the next day and had a car seat in her car. Yeah, and my thinking with her contrary details of what happened, I don't know, it seems like there would need to be some huge conspiracy setup going on. I just don't know if that's true. Yeah, I agree. Like, So I, I just don't know. I think there are obvious glaring issues with her trial, though, and that she should have sure. definitely been granted a retrial. So much went unaddressed because her trial counsel, you know, whether he thinks that she was a difficult client or not, did a bad job defending her. Right. Absolutely agree. And here's the thing. I don't think she should be executed, but that's because, well, A, I'm against the death penalty overall, but especially in a case where there's even a sliver of a possibility that she is innocent or even maybe insane and may not be fully culpable for what she did. But I don't want to minimize the real victims here, Joanna, her husband, cousin, and the baby. I mean, this case is so sad to me, mainly because of what happened to them. 
Right. I just couldn't stop thinking about poor Joanna and her husband and her child and Mm -hmm. then her husband's cousin who's there that night. You know, she barely got to be a mom before her life was taken from her and her husband is overpowered and unable to help her. It's just really awful to think about. And I don't know how you come back from something like that. Yeah. So that wraps us up for this week. But we do have some five star shout outs. We have a few reviewers we want to say thank you to. Thanks to Buy Be Blue, I Care When You Do, and Murphy's Girl 1215 for your feedback. If you're liking the show and have a second, consider leaving us a review. Reviews help the show, and we love to hear from you guys. We also have a new Patreon we want to thank, so thank you to Michelle for your pledge. Your support and the support of our other Patreons help make the show possible, and we can't thank you enough for your generosity. If you want to become a Patreon supporter or you want to check out what merch we have available, head on over to patreon.com slash misconductpodcast. Also, be sure to listen through to the end of the episode for a trailer from our friends over at the Fall Line podcast. If you haven't already listened, be sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe. And if you're feeling extra nice, leave a review. And that wraps us up for another episode of Misconduct. Thank you so much for joining us. Head over to our Facebook group to discuss this week's case. If you're not already a member, join and one of our mods will add you ASAP. We'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions on the cases. Hop on over and let us know what you think of today's case. Do you think Linda's guilty? You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. And we also want to give a huge shout out to the Blank Tapes for our intro and outro music. Be sure to check them out on Bandcamp to listen to more of their stuff. If you have a case suggestion, let us know about it. You can email us at misconductpodcast at gmail.com, and we will see you guys next week. The Fall Line Podcast is a true crime audio serial focusing on marginalized communities in Georgia. The first season investigates the March 18, 1990 disappearance of Augusta, Georgia twins Jeanette and Jeanette Milbrook. The twins, who were 15 at the time, were treated without cause as runaways, and their case was closed less than a week after their 17th birthday. Now, our podcast works to amplify the voices of the twins' family and to uncover facts, explore and dispel rumors, and develop theories in their case. Season 1.5, Out This Fall, We'll cover the case of missing Brunswick, Georgia siblings Monica and Michael Bennett, who disappeared in 1989. Join us as we work in real time to investigate their case. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.